In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, with ever-increasing popularity over the last two decades, the acronym GOAT, which stands for the greatest of all time, has made its way into the vernacular of the sports and entertainment world. And with the advent of social media, uh, it's become common just to insert a little picture of a billy goat when referring to uh, someone that you believe to be the greatest of all time. The debate about who is the greatest basketball player of all time became fierce when LeBron James was compared with Michael Jordan. But the debates became even more heated when people began asking who is the greatest, not just in basketball, but in any sport. Who's the goat of the goats? Is it Wayne Gretzky? Is it Tom Brady? Tiger Woods? Michael Jordan? Michael Phelps? There's much debate about these things. But these debates are not uh, a new phenomenon. They have been a perennial issue throughout human history. And in our Gospel passage this morning, we see Jesus' own disciples are caught debating this very thing. They had been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. The ambitious heart, the heart that longs for greatness, is a fickle thing. So this morning I want us to slow down and probe the ambitious heart. What's really going on inside of us when we long to be great? So as we dive into Mark chapter 9 this morning, I want us to ask these three questions. How does ambition go wrong? What does good ambition look like? And what enables and fuels a holy ambition? So first, how does ambition go wrong? Ambition often has a negative connotation, but ambition in its most basic sense is a desire to achieve just a particular end. A lot can be learned about ambition from the 2002 movie Catch Me If You Can. At the start of the film, we're introduced to a man named Frank Abagnale Sr. And on the surface, it appears that Frank has it all. He has a beautiful wife. They live in a large, beautiful home in a nice neighborhood. He owns his own business. And as the uh, film begins, we see Frank is actually being inducted as an honorary lifetime member in his local uh, Rotary Club. And in his acceptance speech, Frank gives a little parallel that becomes a motif throughout the movie. He says, two mice fell into a bucket of cream. The first one quickly gave up and drowned. The other struggled hard and churned that cream into butter and eventually crawled out. And as of this moment, I am that second mouse, he said. Frank was an ambitious, driven man. And as often can be the case, the ambition of the father can be imposed on the son. Frank Jr. learned a lot about ambition from Frank Sr. And one of the key things he learned was the role of appearances. So as this movie goes on, we learn Frank Sr. was not the upstanding man that he appeared to be. His ambition for material wealth and notoriety drove him to cut corners. And as things begin to fall apart for Frank Sr., Frank Jr. runs away as a high school student and becomes one of the most amazing con artists of all time. Frank Jr. has a knack for using his quick wit, his smooth tongue, and his image in order to misdirect people, and, and he became wildly wealthy doing it. He not only became a connoisseur at counterfeiting checks, but he was a master of conning people. 
And in the film, we are told that from 1964 to 1967, Frank Abagnale Jr. successfully impersonated an airline pilot for Pan Am Airways and flew over two million miles for free. And during that time, he was also chief resident pediatrician at a Georgia hospital, and also during that time, the assistant attorney general for the state of Louisiana. By the time he was caught and sentenced to prison, he had cashed over $6 million in fraudulent checks in 26 foreign countries and in all 50 states, all before his 19th birthday. Pretty amazing. Now, why would he do all of this? What were underneath his desires of ambition? Well, one scene gets it really well. After masquerading around as a pilot for some time, he sits down with his father in a nice New York City restaurant. And by this time, Frank Sr.'s business has been investigated by the IRS, and he's shut it down. Uh, But Frank Jr., he's just hitting his stride. And to his father's astonishment, the son offers the father the keys to a brand new Cadillac. And so Frank Sr. proposes a toast. He says, to the best pilot in the sky. And in a sheepish moment of half-truth, Frank Jr. says, well, it's, it's not what you think. I'm just a co-pilot. <laughs> and his dad turns and says, Frank, you see these people staring at you? These are the most powerful men and women in New York City. And they're all looking over their shoulders to look at you. At the heart of ambition gone wrong is a desire to be seen, a desire to be noticed, to be admired. And there's a second related desire lurking underneath the shadows of our unholy ambition. After impersonating a pilot and amassing wealth, women, and attention, another side of Frank's ambition begins to surface up. The fraud, the impersonations, it's all a massive game that he tries to win. Underneath his ambition is a desire to be seen, but also a desire to win. If you want to understand how ambition goes wrong, it boils down to these two twin desires, to be seen and to win, attention and domination. And that's precisely what's happening in our discussion uh, with the disciples. They were debating about who was the greatest. They wanted to be seen as great. They wanted the attention that greatness brings. For them, following Christ was a game that could be won. And they wanted to be first. Philosopher and expert on St. Augustine, James K.A. Smith, has written a great little book recently called On the Road with St. Augustine. And he takes us inside the mind and the experience of Augustine himself. And what we see is that a 4th century African bishop actually has a whole lot in common with us today in the 21st century. Augustine is someone who is intimately familiar with the ambitious heart. And as Augustine probed his own heart and reflected on his ambitious desires, he found that the best way to understand these ambitious desires was uh, that they are actually a part of a spiritual craving. One of Augustine's most famous sayings is, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so for Augustine, ambition goes wrong when we substitute anything in the place for the goal for which our hearts were made for. And the Apostle Paul will put it similarly similarly in Romans 1, where he says the fundamental problem of the human heart is that we all substitute created things in the place that only the Creator was meant to hold. 
God is the object. He's the goal for which our hearts were made to delight. You see, Augustine, he understood the human heart is like an arrow on a, on a bowstring. Ambition goes bad when the arrow is ra- aimed in the wrong direction. The solution to our ambition is not to relax the string. In fact, Augustine would say that's impossible to do as a human being. Instead, the solution is to make sure that we're aiming the bow of our hearts at the place that will truly satisfy them. For Augustine, the the problem with disordered ambition is that we set our aim upon the uh, right goal. Until we set our aim upon the right goal, our hearts are doomed to this exercise in futility. And I bet this morning that you probably know a little something of what that's like. So much of our world is consumed at these two desires of being seen and winning. After all, what is Instagram if it's not a platform for attention? And yet how fickle and how fragile and fleeting the gaze of others can be. We aspire for the promotion, the paycheck, the scholarship, the trophy, and yet those who actually get them know the kind of postpartum depression that sinks in after they achieve them. Some of the most dejected people that I know are those who have been lucky enough to gain worldly success and fame. And they can tell you firsthand how it turns to ash in their mouth. We all have disordered ambition. We long for attention and domination, and if you've actually been lucky enough to get it, you're quite familiar with the law of diminishing returns. So first, ambition goes wrong when we aim our hearts in the wrong direction. But secondly, what what does good ambition actually look like then? And here's the funny thing. That misery that follows when you actually... uh, got everything and were left disappointed, that's actually a profound mercy. Augustine himself recalled the disappointment he experienced when he was in Milan, which was not all that different uh, than today's Milan. After all, the cities of our ambition, they're perennial. They, They are always the places to be seen. New York City, London, Los Angeles, D.C., Milan... And in the Confessions, Augustine recalls his time in Milan when he was, he was a young, ambitious speechwriter for the emperor. Prior to his Christian conversion, he says, I panted after honors and money and marriage, and thou, O Lord, didst mock me. In pursuit of these ambitions, I endured the most bitter hardships in which thou was being the more gracious, the less thou wouldst allow anything that was not thee to grow sweet to me. You see, God in His kindness lets us experience the futility of our unholy ambitions in order that we might turn to Him and experience the rest our hearts were made for. He continues, what's the aim of life? Can we hope for any higher office than in the palace than to be friends of the emperor? And in that position, what is not fragile and full of dangers? How many hazards must one risk to attain a position of even greater danger? And when will we ever arrive there? Whereas if I wish to become God's friend, in an instant I may receive that right now. 
See, Augustine recognized that in all his efforts to climb the ladder, uh, all of that could be snuffed out at the whim of the emperor. And he sat there dumbfounded, and he concluded that to aspire to be a friend of God, that's the only ambition that comes with absolute security. And now why is that? Because friendship with God is a gift. It doesn't reside in your performance or your skill. It's not something that you achieve. It's given to you. It must be given to you. Ambition to be a friend of God is the one ambition that provides rest from the anxiety of all other ambitions. All other ambitions are fragile. The attention of others, as I said, is is fickle. You can't dominate everyone forever. Just ask Tiger Woods. And yet to aspire to friendship with God is an ambition for something that you can never lose. It is to get attention from someone who sees you and knows you and will never stop loving you. And yet this one holy ambition, it transforms all the other ambitions of life. At the end of his memoir, Open, Andre Agassi recalls a dream that he has the night before his last match of his career. His story is also one of imposed ambition and a lifetime of alienation from his father who actually forced him to play tennis. And now on the the cusp of his retirement, he has this dream and he describes it like this. He says, I'm hobbling through the lobby of the Four Seasons the next morning when a man steps out of the shadows and he grabs my arm. Quit, he says. What? He says, it's my father or a ghost of my father. He he looks as as if he hasn't slept in weeks. Pops, what are you talking about? Just quit. Go home. You did it. It's, it's over. You see, in our culture of ambition, there are only two speeds. Win or quit. And underneath our desire to win often is a hunger to be noticed by a father and to hear him say, well done. You did it. But that's not why your heavenly father loves you. You don't have to win to get his attention. And because of that, you also don't have to quit either. You only have to quit performing. Quit imagining that his love is earned. You can rest in his love and you don't have to quit aspiring for greatness. Let me ask you, did it surprise you that Jesus doesn't rebuke his disciples for wanting to be great? All he does is redefine what greatness really is. Jesus sits down and He takes the posture of a teacher and he begins to teach his disciples about true greatness. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You want to know how to be great? Jesus says, true greatness isn't in being seen. It's not by getting to the top. True greatness is humbling yourself and giving yourself away for the sake of others. And to illustrate what he means, he takes a child in his arms And the significance of this is is lost on our day where we idolize children. In Jesus' day, children were at the bottom of the social hierarchy. They were the least, and yet Jesus, on numerous occasions, does the unthinkable. He not only welcomes them, but he takes them in his arms. And his point is this. We are to draw near to those who are the least and the lowest. Jesus flips how our world sees greatness on its head. 
This is also why the disciples, they couldn't understand what Jesus had said back in verses 30 and 31 when he talks about his death. You see, they understood that the Messiah was supposed to be this great conquering king. He was to come and rule and bring uh, redemption for his people. And so it was ludicrous to his disciples that the Messiah would actually uh, give himself over to a humiliating death. It was Martin Luther, the great reformer, who believed that the cross of Christ was the most important place to look in understanding greatness. And at the Heidelberg Disputation in 1518, he juxtaposes a theologian of glory with a theologian of the cross. He says, a theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross, however, calls the thing what it actually is. And what does he mean? What he's saying is this. The cross redefines everything for the Christian. The cross is is filled with apparent contradictions. At the cross, we find the truth is often the opposite of what we expect. So for Luther, real power is displayed at the cross where God becomes weak and vulnerable. Real wisdom is found in the foolishness of a God on the cross where He Himself becomes sin for sinful humanity. Real greatness is found at the cross where God becomes the chief of servants, giving Himself up for even His enemies. So what is holy ambition? It's becoming a friend of God so that you can pour yourself out for others. And that leads me to my final point. Now what fuels this holy ambition? This question gets at the heart of the Christian message. It would be easy to to stop and say right here, see, Jesus, He shows us what true greatness is. It's be a servant. Show kindness to others. Humble yourself. Follow in His example of the cross. But my friends, if that's the message of Christianity, then there's some terrible news. You and I, in our natural state, simply cannot go and do likewise. Now why is that? Because selfish ambition has been the natural desire of our hearts ever since Eve trusted the lie of the serpent in the garden. When he said, essentially, God is holding you under His thumb. If you just cast off the shackles of His Word, then then you could truly be great. It was the promise of greatness apart from God that wooed the first human beings, and it continues to woo many today. You see, each of us is hardwired for the vain glory and selfish ambition. That's the natural disposition of our hearts, and so the cross cannot be merely our example For in ourselves, we are powerless to follow it. But my friends, at the cross, Jesus doesn't just give us an example to follow. At the cross, He gives Himself. He dies for those who haven't followed His example. He dies for the ambitious who are set on achieving their own glory, who are bent on going their own way. That's the heart of the Christian message. And the moment that you see the cross as God's self-giving for you, the place where He became your servant, then all of a sudden, you have a new power. You have a new heart inside of you and that enables you to love as Christ loved and to achieve true greatness. Let me close by by applying this in two ways. First, some of us here now know all too well the allure of vain glory. So we need to heed Jesus' words about greatness. True greatness is not found in climbing the social ladder by gaining wealth and rank and power. True greatness is found in becoming a friend of God by becoming like Him, loving the things that He loves. 
And so we need to remember how God himself intentionally chose to come into this world. 2,000 years ago, he left his exalted status in heaven, and he became weak and vulnerable. And he didn't just welcome children, he became a child, assuming the lowliest position in society. He became a servant, humbling himself to the cross. Let this inform, then, what we long for, how we behave, who we associate with. My goodness, if St. Philip's became famous for having the lowest and the least in our society flock through our doors, now that would be truly great. A more subtle form of ambition that we all need to be on guard against is, is busyness. Busyness is the fool's gold of ambition. Imagine being in a doctor's office uh, and you see nobody in the waiting room. And in his office you find this doctor by himself simply reading a book. Chances are you would think he's probably not a good doctor. He's not really doing anything. I think many of us fear being like that. So we overload our schedules doing any and everything in order to feel important, to feel busy, to be seen as great. So we, we fear saying no to others most Of all, we fear the quiet and the ordinary moments of our lives. Because vain ambition, by definition, it craves the spectacular. It craves being seen. And a life marked by busyness is probably a sign that you and I have fallen prey to vain ambition. My friends, how easy it is for us to favor the parts of our day where we can be seen as great. As I was preparing to preach this week, I chatted with several of our clergy uh, about the temptations to be great in in ministry. And I looked into my own heart and I see the temptation there to uh, easily favor being in the pulpit than at the prayer desk. To to long for the platform as opposed to being with one-on-one people in a uh, counseling session maybe. One is prominent and visible, the other is private and unseen. And yet Christ calls us to do both. He injects both with great significance. And so in preaching, I can guarantee you that each of the clergy here longs for you to see Christ more than ourselves. After all, it was the Scottish scholar James Denny who said, it is impossible at the same time to leave the impression both that I am a great preacher and that Jesus is a great Savior. So my friends, let us beware of busyness. Let us not shun the quiet moments, the ordinary moments of our lives. Let us beware of favoring the more spectacular parts of our vocation. And when we must be seen, may people see Christ in and through us. And finally, a second application is this. While we need to be aware of the lure of vainglory in our lives, some of us also need to be urged to actually aspire for greatness. For many of you, your problem is not that you are ambitious, it's actually that you're not ambitious enough. In avoiding the vainglory in the spotlight, you have left some of your gifts, perhaps, on the table. And so faithfulness for you will look like taking up the mantle and and striving for true greatness. A, A movie that I really enjoy is the 1988 film Stand and Deliver, which is based on a true story. It's about a high school teacher named... Jamie Escalante, who finds himself in East L.A., and he's in a school filled with people of low socioeconomic status. And the major problem that he faces there 
is that these people are so despondent that they actually refuse to aspire. And the movie portrays the wonderful story of how Escalante insists uh, and he instills a healthy ambition in, in his students. And they begin to aspire. They take ownership of their education. And as a result, the culture begins to change. The entire community is rehabilitated. You see, the opposite of ambition is not humility. The opposite of ambition is passivity. It's timidity. It's lethargy. Jesus doesn't want His disciples to lose their ambition. He wants them to have a holy ambition. My friends, there is work to be done while we are here on earth. There are the lowly to be welcomed, the sick to be cared for, the lost to be won. So let us look to the cross of Christ and let us aspire for true greatness, following in the footsteps of our Savior Jesus Christ and becoming humble servants as He did. Amen.